Okay, we're at the halfway point of talking about how do we as biblically faithful Christians navigate what I call the culture of darkness and death and tyranny that's, from my perspective, is engulfing our nation. Now, there's always been a culture of darkness and death and tyranny ever since the Garden of Eden. But in my lifetime, I've never seen it so blatant in our nation like it is today. Uh, Let me give you two examples of what I mean by the culture of darkness and death and tyranny. Um, Two examples. Uh, I saw a picture um, of a young woman this week at a pro-abortion rally. You think MAGA is just on the right wing of the politically? No, there's a MAGA of the left holding a sign saying, um, make abortion great again. Um, my goodness. And then, uh, I hate to say it, but our own mayor this week in commenting on why he marched, or last week marched in the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, march, which I think he should have, and anybody should, uh, they asked him why, and he said, because we're, I was marching for justice and equity. Part of the culture of darkness and death, you, I've said this previously, is altering the language. That word equity, what's wrong with it? Sounds good. But Martin Luther King would go, no. Justice and equality. Big difference between equity and equality. Let me give you an illustration. Equity means that you get everybody to have the same outcome. Sounds good, doesn't it? Apply that to the world of sports. If you're a Spurs fan, you'd be happy if the NBA (laughs) said, we're ruling equity. So when the Spurs are 39 points down and the buzzer goes off the end of the game, it's a tie. (laughs) They rule it a tie. And in fact, every game is a tie. Today's playoff game with the Cowboys and the 49ers. You'd know how to bet ahead of time. You just bet on a tie. That's equity. Both teams come out the same. Um, Folks, that's not real life. That's not equality. So alter the language. Um, Pro-death, abortion, I'm sorry, I believe. Well, anyway. So we've been talking about how do we navigate this. And um, I want to revisit last week a little bit. First of all, This is going to be our key verse for navigating the culture of darkness and death and tyranny. Ephesians 4.15. Let me read it for you. It says, um, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. And you know, last week I talked about knowing God's macro will for your life as opposed to God's micro-will. Mostly, people are interested in what's God's micro-will for my life. Questions like, who should I marry? Should I take this job? Should we buy this house? Should I do this or that or the other? That's what people, when I was an active pastor, that's what people would mostly come to me to talk about wanting to know God's will for their lives. I'd say, well, you got to back up first and figure out what is God's macro-will for your life? I'd say, what's that? I'd say, What's in Scripture? Ephesians 14 sums up almost the entirety of God's macro will for your lives and mine. That uh, we are to speak the truth in love, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But here's God's will for every Christian to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Everything that's happening in your life, good, the bad, and the ugly, God is using that, and he hopes we will cooperate with him to hone, mold, shape you and me to look more and more like Jesus Christ. I remember hearing about a story of a a woman who and her little boy were driving out in the country, and she got a flat. She couldn't fix it. Nighttime was coming on. They were scared to death. They didn't know where they were. And this man came along in a pickup truck, Ford F-150, and got out and said, ma'am, I'll be glad to change the tire for you. And he 
did that, but he also just talked to them in very gracious ways and fixed the tire and they were on their way. And the little boy turned to his mother and said, Mommy, was that Jesus? That's what people ought to be saying about you and me. Uh, we, if we're cooperating with the Holy Spirit, that's called sanctification. We should be looking more and more like Christ. It doesn't mean you become sinless. It means that if you graft out your life over the next 10 years, it's going to kind of be like, it should look sort of like the stock market. You know, like the, but over time, it, it, it ought to be heading upward. If it's going the other way, the Holy Spirit and you probably need to have a good talk. Um, but this, this macro will is so important. And, you know, last week we were talking about, well, how do we navigate this? I know friends who uh, went to the March for Life in Washington. I have friends that have laid down at abortion clinics. I have friends that have picketed different, different things. Um, I haven't done that. And I have friends who said, Ron, you're a chicken or something. You're not doing it. But I really believe that it's not a one-size-fits-all how you and I are going to navigate this culture of darkness and death. He calls some people to be, I believe, culture warriors. And they're out there. But you better be sure you're called to do that, not just because you're mad. Um, I think God calls other people to be prayer warriors. In 19, uh, about 1979, I remember 60 Minutes piece, they, for some reason they decide they're going to interview this cloister of nuns in upstate New York. They were cloistered. I mean, they never go out anywhere. And uh, they interviewed them and said, what's your purpose? They said, we have one purpose here. To pray, but specifically to pray that the Berlin Wall would come down. And this was 1979. Ten years later, 60 Minutes revisits the cloister because the Berlin Wall had come down. And of course, Mike Wallace was the interviewer. He goes in there, he's all excited. Can you believe what happened? And the nuns are totally like, well, yeah. What do you think? We've been praying. And, uh, you know, some people are called to be prayer warriors. You got to find what is God's micro call for you in this culture underneath the macro call. The macro call is to, first of all, speak the truth in love. Sounds good. Sounds kind of easy. That is the hardest verse in Scripture to really live out. Our tendency is to tip to one side or the other. Speak the truth. That's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen on anybody. You know, that wasn't very loving. And, you know, we get angry at certain things and the temptations that go out there and blast away. That turns non-believers off like crazy. And to help you on this journey, I put a couple of things up here. Uh, Denisonforum.org. Jim Denison is a Baptist pastor. He's a Baptist, not a Baptist Pastor in Dallas, he's one of my best friends. He's in my will to do my funeral, who, along with whoever else is senior pastor at First Press. And he's the smartest guy I've ever met. Gracious, godly, knows the culture. He has this, uh, it's, it's analyzing the culture every day, different things. If you're, it's free. Just Google denisonform.org and they'll have a little click. You can subscribe. Every day in your email, you'll get a piece by him that's the best stuff out there. In fact, let me read a letter he sent me uh, this past week. So, said, Dear Ron, consider the last newsworthy event that made you shake your head at its blatant disregard for biblical truth. No, we can't expect a secular culture to abide by God's word. But doesn't it seem like our country shared a common moral decency not so long ago? A respect for life, a belief in the sanctity of marriage, an agreement on the definition of what was a man and a woman. The list goes on and the changes to the very fabric of our society keep happening at an ever-increasing pace. When I think about the issues that make me shake my head, I'm reminded of this insight from 
Johnny Erickson Tata. You may know who that is. She's a quadriplegic, tragic diving accident back in like 1968. But she's a great Christian writer and artist. She writes, Gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, and then acceptable, and then legal, and then applaudable. She wrote that in 1992 in a book about assisted suicide, yet another tragic choice that our culture is coming around to. But her words are so prescient about so much that's happened in America over the last few decades. We live in a day when forces opposed to the gospel are at work in this world on an unprecedented level. Consequently, spiritual awakening in America is more essential than ever before. Can we Christians do anything about the state of our states? Should we retreat, advance, compromise, confront? God's word will light our path forward, and that alone. And I think he's right on target. You and I, first of all, need to practice God's macro will. Learn how to speak the truth in love. Uh, The other side of that coin is, you know, you find people who are just all love. I don't want to say anything bad or, you know, somebody's in a self-destructive lifestyle and, oh, you just want to make them feel good. And that's not really loving them. And so it's this fine line of speaking the truth in a loving way. And I don't know about you, but that's the hardest thing for me to do. But that's something that God's saying, that's what you got to keep trying, trying, trying. And look what happens when we do it. Um, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. He's, he's the only human being that ever always spoke the truth in love perfectly. We'll never be perfect in that, but we're to keep trying. Um, and I talked last week about the three ordinary means of grace. These are the things you and I need to practice in order to be able to speak the truth in love. The Reformed faith, John Calvin. Well, not even Calvin, too, Luther. They said there's three ordinary means of grace available to every Christian. Uh, they're fairly easy to practice. We tend to not think that they're that important. They are of crucial importance if you're going to be the man or woman Christ has called you to be. The first one is the Word, God's Word, the Bible. First of all, believe it to be what our Presbyterian confessions say it is. They could be wrong. I don't think so. Scripture's own self-attestation is that this is the inspired, infallible, and I don't mind using the word inerrant, Word of God. When you believe that, as soon as you give on that, it opens the door to all kinds of stuff. That Our previous denomination began to give on that. They wanted to accept some parts of the Bible as authoritative and true. Other parts, well, that's just old. You know, Paul really didn't know what he was talking. He was product of his time. And once you do that, <laughs> any issue that comes down the pike, if you don't like it, you can find a reason in Scripture not to accept it and follow God's Word. And uh, so if you believe the whole thing cover to cover, that leaves you no wiggle room. Um, you got to go to the mat with every issue that the culture throws at you. And uh, so the ordinary means of grace, but you got to read it. I meant to put up here um, ourdailybread.org. Um, that's a devotional I've used since 1979. Google it, it's free. They will send you a monthly devotional book, and it has a Bible reading plan in there for the year. I use that. There's plenty of Bible reading plans out there. But I remember in seminary, my first semester, I read a quote by Martin Luther. He was a professor in Wittenberg, and he was training pastors to preach. And he said, you'll never be a decent preacher unless you read through the Bible every year, not to prepare your sermons, but to be filling the well. I was naive enough, coming out of a science background into the seminary, thinking, I don't know nothing about nothing, to believe Luther was right. So I made a commitment to read God's word through every year 
I've done it ever since 1975. And sometimes I can't tell you what I read that morning. But I can't tell you what Ann fixed for dinner last Wednesday. (laughs) But, But the food nourished me and plowing through First Chronicles, sometimes I'm like, this is a desert. Well, that's life, you know. There are desert times in life, and I believe Scripture takes you on a real-life journey, but there's more going on in that desert with you interacting with the Word than you and I will ever understand until we get into eternity. Call it osmosis. Call it the Holy Spirit working behind the scenes, honing you, and the repetition of that is forming your mind toward the mind of Christ. That's ordinary grace number one. Interaction, personal interaction, belief in, uh, reading through, and trying to practice the Word of God in your life. Ordinary means of grace number two, prayer. Prayer. Prayer is simply conversation with God. That's all it is. It's not something fancy. Um, What about rote prayers, written down prayers? Those are fine if you really pray them. And look at what they're saying. It uh, doesn't always have to be extemporaneous. If, you have, if you're uh, uh, not a, you don't think you're a good prayer and you want to learn how to pray, a couple ways to do that. Number one, just start praying the Psalms. The Psalms are the Hebrew prayer book. Pray a Psalm a day. Truly try to pray it like the writer of the, that wrote the Psalm. Uh, secondly, get in a prayer group. Um, and Every prayer group I've ever been in, nobody has to pray. Nobody says, everybody's got to pray. And the best way to learn is to listen to prayer warriors pray. If you're a man, we have a group of men that pray every Wednesday morning at 6.30 a.m. in the parking lot of the church, come rain or shine. We're out there, umbrellas, wrapped up in parkas. Hmm? You mentioned the umbrellas. Now, Ryan, when was Oh, that? yeah, yeah. It was, that was a while ago. But I'm just saying, we don't get deterred by whatever the weather is. We're out in the middle of the parking lot. It's dark, and there's about six of us gather, and we pray. That's my highlight of the week. These guys are prayer warriors. I'm learning from them how to pray. And uh, so be a man or woman of prayer. Daily conversation with God. It's just... The Christian faith is primarily not a bunch of beliefs. It's, at heart, a relationship with the living God. Now, that would be presumptuous for me to say that, unless it was God that was inviting you and me into that relationship. You see it right in the Garden of Eden. God's not out there and Adam and Eve are down here. He's in the garden with them. And after they sin, that scares the pejeebies out of them, you know. And then throughout Scripture, it's God's personal interaction. Abraham, Moses, and J- Jacob, and Isaac, and Paul. And, well, that didn't stop at the end of the Bible. It's a, the Christian faith is all about a personal relationship with the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Just like any relationship you and I have. Let's say you have a best friend. Hopefully everybody does. And you say, I'm going to try an experiment. I am not going to talk to my best friend for the next six months. What do you think that relationship would be like after that six months? And if they call me or something, I'm not going to listen to them for six months. And let's just see what happens. I guarantee you they probably are not going to be your best friend anymore. It's communicate, you know, in marriage counseling, it's all about communication. Open lines of communication, constant communication. And the neat thing about Scripture, it tells us you and I can pray about anything. You know, God's created billions of galaxies, trillions of stars. And the Bible says he knows each one of them by name. He's named all of them. Trillions. But then it goes, this gigantic, big, out there, magnificent, awesome, infinite God also knows the number of hairs on your head. Now that's a triviality that I don't really care how many hairs are on my head. But God does. He, so there's, I think that's a way of him saying to us, there's nothing in your life too trivial that you can't invite me in on it. I remember in seminary in, my, in a class with my, my mentor, Dr. John Leith, somebody 
raised their hand and said, is it okay to pray for a parking space? <laughs> Dr. Leith did not suffer fools well. And I was waiting for him to blast this guy, but he didn't. He said, you know, it depends. If you just are lazy and you don't want to walk 10 more yards, I'm not sure. But if you've got a sick child in the back seat who's dying and you're heading for the hospital, you better be praying for a parking place. So, uh, but I don't think there's anything, you know, what seems trivial in your life to me doesn't seem trivial in your life to you. And if God loves you with an infinite love more than I do, he's probably just, probably more interested than you are in that situation. So we can pray about anything and everything. And God's not put off. He doesn't go, ew, I didn't know you were doing that. Um, I'm not going to answer that prayer. No. Uh, but also remember, God is not a, a celestial genie who you can you know, call up to do your bidding. Um, be glad that God sometimes doesn't answer your prayers the way you want. Think about it. What if God answered every prayer in your life that you made from the time you were a little child? Answered just like you wanted. My backyard would have been filled with uh, junior mints. Uh, and I'm not sure that would have done anything for the grass back there. But you know, we pray about a lot of dumb stuff, but we don't realize it's dumb. And God probably chuckles and goes, I ain't answering that one. Someday you'll figure out why. Um, he usually says yes, no, or sometimes wait, or maybe, or no. Um, but if you're in a relationship with a person and you know that person loves you and they say no, that's a whole lot different. You take it a whole lot differently than if it's a stranger saying no. Um, develop that second ordinary means of grace. And the important part of this is it's, all of this is of grace. It's grace that God has given us his word. He could say, I created you, figure it all out. No, grace is he gives us his word. Written in the Bible, living in Jesus Christ. Prayer is grace. We don't deserve to go into the throne room of the almighty creator of the universe. Remember the story of Esther and uh, you know the, uh, the king. Uh, there's going to be this genocide against all the Jews. And Mordecai, her uncle, and Esther's the queen. She's Jewish. I'm not, I don't think the king knew that. And so Mordecai, her uncle, says, Esther, you better go in there and do something about this. You're the only one that can get to the king. She said, yeah, but there's a penalty. If you walk into the king's throne room unannounced, he can have you put to death unless he holds out the golden scepter. Mordecai says, are you going to chicken out? It could be that just for a time like this, God has raised you up. And so Esther wrestles with this and finally screws up the courage and walks in and the king extends the golden scepter. Wow. With you and me, know this, because Christ went to the cross and accomplished the once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice that covers yours and my sin, the golden scepter is always held up. Don't ever think, well, I can't bother him with this. I sinned yesterday like crazy. He's not going to listen to me. He's not going to let me in. No, it's always the golden scepter. That's sheer grace. And the third of the ordinary means of grace is, the reformer said, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, slash worship. Weekly worship. If, if, if you're not coming here and getting reoriented every week because you're getting disoriented by this culture of darkness and death and tyranny throughout the week. And it's worse now because of social media. I mean, it used to be, you know, the TV and radio went off at midnight or wherever it was. They did the Star Spangled Banner. Now you can 24-7 literally immerse yourself. And it's addictive. They're, they're producing all kinds of studies. You and, you and me get this epinephrine jolt when we're looking at social media and we're being slowly, you know, you don't realize it, but you're being seduced and decentralized, desensitized, you know, like Johnny Erickson says, you know, 
First, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, then acceptable, then legal, then applaudable. If I could put you in a time machine and jet you back to 1990, or if we were back in 1990 and I could jet you forward in a time machine to 2021 and sit you down in front of a television set during family hour, whatever that is, you would be shocked. You would walk out of there. You know, I can only take so much news on TV that, and I'll tell you, I go, I'm done. I go in, I watch Andy of Mayberry or Everybody Loves Raymond. On, <laughs> I'm serious. I've seen every episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. And um, so I go in there to get away from that stuff. Just about two weeks ago, they started running these ads uh, for drag shows by RuPaul on this family channel. So in between Andy and Mayberry and everybody was Raymond, and I just like, I can't get away from this stuff. It's just coming at you every which way. The Lord's Supper. I'm glad we celebrate it once a month. When I came to First Pres, we celebrated it quarterly. Where does that come from? Presbyterian church history was quarterly communion. You know where that came from? Our heritage in Scotland, our Roman Catholic heritage in Scotland. Now the Roman Mass was celebrated every week, but in Scotland, the priest, only the priest consumed the wine and the bread every week. Four times a year, the lay people could come forward and get just the bread. John Knox, Roman Catholic priest, converted. And the whole the church, the Scottish church, the land of Scotland is the only, well, even more so than Germany. Really, the Reformation took hold and it, it switched from Roman Catholic to Presbyterian. In Scotland, we have all the good, old, ancient, big churches. The Roman Catholic churches are all new. They're considered free churches. They're not a part of the Church of Scotland. It goes back to 563 A.D., St. Columba. Anyway, so Knox says, well, I'm sorry, under the Roman system, the people got the wafer twice a year. Knox says, that's not right. I'm going to double it and give them both elements. He thought that was a big deal. So they'd have quarterly communion. Fortunately, our session here, I can't remember what year it was. You remember, Barbara? We decided to go to first Sunday of the month communion. I've said from every pulpit I've served, Give me a biblical argument against weekly communion. You can't. The only arguments I ever hear from well-meaning lay people is, oh, it would, it would make it too familiar and we wouldn't appreciate it enough. My rejoinder is, why don't I just preach like five times a year then my sermons will mean a whole lot more to you. Like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> um, think this through with me. If... Communion, the Lord's Supper, really is a means of grace. That means God putting into your being something from the outside, and I can't explain how. You know, Roman Catholics, uh, by the way, do we as Presbyterians believe in the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper? Yes. Yes. If you weren't in this class and I just grabbed you out in the hall and said that, you'd probably go, no. But you knew the answer must be yes. Uh, I wouldn't bring it up. But most Presbyterians don't believe that. In my anecdotal surveys. And here's the difference between us and Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics really didn't think much about it until Thomas Aquinas came along in the 12th century. And Aquinas was a great philosopher. He's a great theologian. He wanted to figure out, well, what does that actually mean that Christ is really present in the elements? So he wrestled with that and came up with the, what it's called trans, uh, transubstantiation, which, according to a Roman Catholic priest of mine, is not canon law. You don't have to believe it to be a Roman Catholic. And he said the actual bread and the actual wine uh, 
don't change their accidents, their appearance, still looks, smells, tastes like bread, but actually becomes the real body and blood of, of Jesus. Luther believed this. Calvin believed it. Then the Reformation came around, and they began to question that. Do we really want to philosophize uh, a mystery like this? Luther said, I don't think that's right. And so Luther kind of looked for a midway point. He came up with what's called consubstantiation. That the bread and wine don't actually become the actual body and blood, but the actual body and blood of Christ is kind of in and around and under the elements. Calvin weighed in and said, guys, we're trying to philosophically understand a mystery that's beyond. He says, reform faith, we just affirm it. Christ is really present. We don't try to philosophically determine how that is. We just bow before the mystery. That is, that's classic Presbyterianism. If you go to a Roman Catholic church and go to a priest and say, I'm Presbyterian, can I take communion? If he says, they'll usually ask you, do you believe the real presence? You say, yes. Uh, I've never been refused in a Roman Catholic church. I've even had communion served to me by Archbishop Cardinal Flores. And when I told him that, he said, you come to me, I will serve you personally. So anyway, um, the three ordinary means of grace. Regular partaking of the Lord's Supper. Uh, in Dallas, we, I pushed through a thing where we had communion at one service every week. And uh, most PCA churches, new plants, in fact, everyone that I know of has communion every week. They've come to a re-understanding like, wow, this really is a means of grace. Why are we withholding grace from our parishioners? We've got to make it frequent, weekly. So, session members, go after it. Um, anyway, okay. What are some of the things out there that are, that are significantly... Uh, happening because of this culture of darkness, death, and tyranny. Well, I've, I've talked about abortion. Um, I just don't see in Scripture how you can, even common sense, you don't kill your kids. You don't kill your kids. Uh, I'm glad that uh, Roe v. Way was under, overturned. Uh, bad law, even if you're pro-choice. Ruth Gator Ginsburg said, bad law. Out of nowhere, they just came out. It's not in the Constitution. What's not in the Constitution is left to the states. That's part of this tyranny thing. That's the first time in my life that I began. 1973 was a weird year. You had Watergate. You had Roe v. Wade. And that's when I started realizing, I always thought the U.S. had a white hat and everybody else had a black hat. And our president was lying, Nixon. Um, and they pull out this thing where it's imposed on the whole country about abortion. Again, even if you're pro-abortion, that's not the way you do it. It should have been a referendum with the states, and that's our constitutional, uh, our federal republic. Uh, but that was just a, a, a tyrannical act. Hallelujah, it's been undone. Um, euthanasia, which Johnny Erickson said is increasingly come our way, there are already states in the United States that have okayed euthanasia. Oregon is one, and there are a couple of others. I can't remember who they are. So if you want your doctor to kill you, you just tell them that. Uh, of course, sexual anarchy, like we've never seen. Uh, and as a scientist, as, as a biologist, and the masters of reproductive physiology, you know, there's only one, or there's only two genders, you know. But you know, I'm, 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 they're talking about reparations in California, given everybody that was ancestors of slaves. Like they've been debating whether it should be five hundred thousand dollars or five million. If that ever passes, I'm moving to California. And I'm going to get in on it. Uh, <laughs> it's all circumstantial evidence. I can't prove it, but neither can anybody else out here. Um, my our ancestors, the Skates clan. Uh, we know they landed in Virginia in 1646. Well, if you study history, 1646 is when uh, 
the English uh, dragoons were going all over Scotland hunting down these wild-eyed covenanters. My family was covenanters from the island uh, West Hebrides. And uh, if they didn't kill them, they shipped them off to America, not as indentured servants, but as slaves. And from 1641 to about 1649, this period was going on. And so that's when our family arrives in Virginia. Um, my, now, there's no, nothing in our clan history that says we were slaves, but they probably were. Problem was, if you were white, you could escape from the plantation pretty easily. Um, so I'm going to go in for reparations and see if I get my share of the, uh, the, the way money is being used today. You know, we've seen this, this scandal of Bitcoin stuff. And, um, but just the waste of money. Um, I am so glad. I, I am not a Republican. I am so glad this new Speaker of the House, they've put a new, they've put the rules back. Did you know that the rules were changed about 2009 under Nancy Pelosi? The rules of how a bill comes on the floor of the House. Um, you could only introduce a bill that dealt with one thing. And then the congressman had to have enough time to read it. And then there had to be time to debate. There's been no debate on the floor of the House for the past 13 years, 14 years. Um, and they bring these omnibus bills and then they make sure every congressman has something in there they want for their people uh, so they will vote for it and then they just again that's tyranny the way money is being used and I don't have to say this to you if you and I were in debt like the federal government is 31 trillion if we were in debt on our credit cards in proportion to what they are you and I would already be serving our prison time. We'd be well into it. How long can this go on? And money is a very spiritual thing. Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Where is all of our money going to? Um, I want the war with Ukraine and Russia to end. I've never believed we should have gotten into it like we are. Where's our money going to, though? Nobody's auditing this. No one. The government can't tell you where all these billions of dollars are going to. And that is not a democracy. Ukraine is not. They've shut down the free press. They banned the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, Zelensky. And yet we herald him as a, a hero. Speech, the crudeness and rudeness of speech, as well as altering the language. I don't know what year it was, but again, you know, Rush Limbaugh. I liked listening to him. He's a brilliant guy. But this is Rush Limbaugh, Hannity, you name it. Terms for our rear end. Um, they started using crude terms. I remember thinking, oh, Sean, don't talk like, don't get down on their level. Um, and so you just hear awful speech, um, which I was a part of before I came a, became a Christian. And <laughs> I remember... Um, Watching the Emmys or Oscars, this is probably 15 or 16 years ago, and they had Bono of U2. He was one of the presenters of one of the awards. Now, Bono, I know a guy who's personal friends with Bono, and they're members of the same church, Presbyterian Church of Ireland. And my friend, who comes over to the U.S. a lot, Alan Smith is his name, and he, he says, you know, Bono's the real deal, Ron. He's... He's the real deal. He's come to Christ. He's got a personal relationship, blah, blah, blah. And I said, Alan, I don't know. He said, what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, I saw him on TV the other day dropping F-bombs left and right on this thing. You know, how could he be a Christian and do that? <laughs> Alan said, Ron, have you ever been to Ireland? I said, no, I'm a Scot. We stay away from there. <laughs> and uh, he said, if you were walking down the street of Dublin, and you didn't have a watch, and you wonder what time it was, and here comes a nun. You said, excuse me, man, what time is it? she go, it's effing two o'clock. <laughs> okay, anyway. Christians, we need to clean up our speech. 
You know, the, when we say, gosh darn, that's really a euphemism for you know what. I've tried to catch myself. I shouldn't even be saying those kind of things. Glory be! That's what I'm going to say instead. Um, <laughs> racism. It's still rampant in our culture, except now it's, it's being reversed. If you want to be disabused of racism, read Revelation 7, verse 9. Because it tells you what the fulfilled kingdom is going to look like. It says people from every tribe and nation, and actually the Greek word could be translated more accurately, ethnic group. Because there's a lot of different nations, and, but there's even thousand more ethnic groups. From every ethnic group, people are going to be bowing before the throne, giving glory to God. So if there's a certain ethnic group that you don't like or you have a problem with or you look down on, don't think they're, you know, as good as I am, you better get over that because you're going to spend eternity with these folks. Now, I'm a recovering racist. I grew up in the South and I grew up just innately being, it was never said to me, it's just, but I remember colored water fountains and I went to segregated schools and Seemed okay to me. And uh, I just thought that's the way things are. It's probably best that way. I had to be disabused of that. So it's a struggle even with myself. Um, and the biblical worldview is disappearing in our nation and in our church. Churches and the church with the capital C. Uh, they did a survey about 10 years ago of pastors in America. Seven percent, seven percent of pastors had a biblical worldview. Now this was done by George Barna and he had a criteria of eight things. And I, I didn't necessarily agree with, I'm not sure that's the criteria I would have put. But anyway, only seven percent of pastors have a biblical worldview. I fall into that 7%. Um, the, the denomination had the most pastors, and it was about 50% was the uh, American Baptist Church, not the Southern Baptist, American Baptist. We weren't, I was in the PCUSA at that time, we weren't the worst. Um, I was really surprised. The Lutheran Church was worse. Presbyterians were about 18% of Presbyterian pastors believed, had a biblical worldview, but Lutherans were worse. United Church of Christ was like UCC, I, I call that Unitarians considering Christ, and they were the worst, which wasn't surprising. Um, but our, you know, our culture, to use a, a story by a Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish theologian, he said, our, our, and he was writing back in the 19th century, but he said the culture is like a jewelry store that thieves have broken into, but they haven't stolen anything. They've just rearranged all the price tags. That's our culture. What we used to feel was important and sacred has now been reduced to triviality and what was considered evil or mundane or you know not important has been elevated. And so all the price tags have been changed. And um, so we're all confused. So if you're not going to weekly worship and getting reoriented, if you're not reading the Bible daily, you're going into the battle unarmed. If you're not in conversation with your commander-in-chief daily, you're going to easily be seduced by the infiltrators that the devil has put in amongst us who come as angels of light and you won't be able to tell the difference. You know, if Scripture fine-tunes yours and my ears of faith to God's still small voice. You know, he's speaking to us all the time. But this cacophony of the world's siren and shouting voices is drowning him out. Unle I remember reading a story one time about these two roommates at Dartmouth College, which was one of our Presbyterian schools, started for the education of American Indians, and now it's devolved into, you know, whatever. But back in the 19th century, this American boy and an Indian boy were roommates, and the American boy lived in New York City, invited his Indian roommate to come home to New York 
with them for Thanksgiving. And they did. And they're walking down Fifth Avenue or something, you know, back then, horses and buggies and all that stuff. And the Indian says, wait a minute, listen, do you hear that? And the, and there, I mean, there was people yelling and shouting and, and the horses clip-clopping and all that stuff. And the American boy said, hear what? Over this din. And the American Indian boy runs across the street, runs up a flight of stairs on one of those brown stones. There's a flower box outside. And he goes, look, a cricket. And there. Well, his ear was tuned to hear the cricket. The Anglo boy, it was drowned out. So if you're not fine-tuning your ear, then some of this stuff starts to sound tolerable, and then you begin to accept it, and then you actually say, what's wrong with that? And if we could take you back in a time machine, you'd go, ah, that will never be me. Here we are. Let's jump over quickly to the Barman Declaration, because I want to anchor us in this. And if you, by the way, if you don't have one, here's some extras. Ann, could I get you to hand these out to anybody? That... Reminder, if you're new here, the Barman, I, I'm not very smart on all this stuff. So I thought I better anchor myself to a bunch of Christians that have already gone through this before us. So the Barman Declaration was drawn up about 1934 in Germany by uh, theologians and pastors of what was called the Confessing Church. In Germany, there were three basic Christian faiths in Germany at the beginning of World War II. Roman Catholic, which was the smallest, then Lutheran and Reformed. And the Lutheran and Reformed went together uh, they called themselves the Evangelical Church of Germany. They weren't formally united, but they cooperated, did a lot of stuff together. And so when Hitler takes power, you know, one of the things in, um, that happens in a tyrannical society is the church must be taken over and or silenced. Hitler knew this. The tyranny powers in our nation know this. They're doing their best to marginalize the church, and they're doing a pretty good job. So, uh, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, Martin Niemöller were part of this underground confessing church. And they hammered out this Barman Declaration over and against uh, the Third Reich. And if you look at number three, each of these six, there's an affirmation and a renunciation underneath all these. And so, here's our verse in number three. Let us speak the truth in love in every respect, grow into him who is the head of... The head into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined together. And it says the Christian church is the community of brethren in which word and sacrament, I don't know why they left out prayer, they get two of the three ordinary means of grace, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus acts in the present as Lord, with both its faith and its obedience, with both its message and its order. It has to testify in the midst of this sinful world as the church of pardoned sinners that belongs to Him alone. And, lives, and lives and may live by his comfort and under his direction alone in expectation of his appearing. That says, we reject the false doctrine that the church could have permission to hand over the form of its message and of its order to whatever it itself might wish or to the vicissitudes of the prevailing ideological and political convictions of the day. Now, this is not just a bunch of rhetoric. These guys' lives were on the line. This was a death sentence to sign this. And many of them did die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung five days before the concentration camp was liberated that he was in. So these guys were putting their literal lives on the line, holding up the fact that we're going to not yield that Jesus is Lord of everything, not just spiritual stuff, but the government, our money, our time, everything under the sun. And we're not going to give on that. Um, and again, I don't want to kick a dead horse, but our previous denomination just yielded, yielded. Yield. You talk about a culturally captive group. I think I said this last week. If I did, excuse me, but um, I had it verified. I'm doing an interview, a lot of interviews with people. I'm writing a chapter 
to be included on, in a book on Presbyterian missions in Africa. They wanted me to do an eco chapter. So I'm interviewing all these people, and I was interviewing the guy who used to be the head of the Presbyterian Outreach Foundation, which Lewis helped start. And I said, is it true? I heard that the, our former denomination has closed down its mission board. They don't send missionaries anymore because that's colonialistic, imposing people, as if somebody needs Jesus that doesn't have him. And he said, it's true. And I asked Bob, too, and he said, yeah, at the last board meeting of the Outreach Foundation, they showed up and said, would you take all of our missionaries? We don't want to fund them anymore. And so the Outreach Foundation, which is EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and ECO, they work together. So we're taking over all the former missionaries of the PCUSA. Talk about a culturally captive group. Um, but we should expect that. The culture, like Denison says, we should not expect the culture to act any different than it's acting. We shouldn't be shocked at it. They're spiritually blind. I mean, they can't see. They see stuff we can't see because things, their, their, their sight is damaged. Um, you know, if, if you had been at the burning bush with Moses, what would you have seen? Moses saw a bush burning, but it wasn't consumed. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, one of my favorite poems is by her, and I can't quote it exactly, but she's talking about the burning bush, and she said, some take off their shoes and worship. Others pick blackberries. You know, if, if you're spiritually blind, you can't see the bush on fire. And yet, oh, it begins, every bush aflame. Some take off their shoes and worship. Others just pick blackberry. They're spiritually deaf. You're on the road to Damascus with Paul. You're a Roman soldier. Paul is struck down and hears Jesus. Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What does it say the Roman soldiers heard? They thought it thundered. They were spiritually deaf. They couldn't hear. Um, and so it's when you're spiritually your eyesight spiritually is intact in your ear. You hear and see things that non-believers can't. We shouldn't expect them to. They're acting just like their sight and hearing ability uh, tells them it's true. And so when a, a person with a PhD says, I'm not sure what a woman is, and we go, who is the father of confusion and lies? Satan. And he is whispering in their ears. All, he's whispering in my ears all the time. And if I'm not countering that with the three ordinary means of grace, I will be seduced down the same trail. Speaking the truth in love. And if you, I, I tell people, kids going off to college, I said, look, you're going to be told a lot of stuff. Be unrelenting in pursuit of the truth. Question everything and doggedly pursue the truth. That sounds like it might be dangerous, not at all. If you do that, where do you wind up? In the arms of Jesus, who said, I am the truth. So if you pursue truth unrelentlessly, you will eventually wind up in the arms of Christ. These folks, we shouldn't be angry at them and hate them. Remember, they're the hostages. Satan's the enemy. So how do you, what's our goal? To free the hostages. How do we do that as a church? By introducing them to the truth, who is Jesus, by speaking the truth in love. You know, if God's sovereign, I don't have to win anybody to anything. I don't have to win the battle. I can trust. If I can just, and I'm saying this like I do this, I don't. I'm trying to. I, I should be going out and just letting them have at me. And as long as I don't blow my cool, it's in the Holy Spirit's court. When I left Baltimore Presbytery, I affectionately called it Baltimore Presbytery. It was the worst 
It was, it was like the canary in the cage in the mine. And the canary died in Baltimore 30 years ago. And I thought, this is coming across the whole denomination. And it did. When I, and I would get on the floor of Presbytery, and they had what I call the order of the day of spitting on the cross. They came up with something every Presbyterian meeting. And I would get up, and I would try to be gracious and say, you know, that's just not right. That's in conflict with Scripture. It's in conflict with our confessions of faith. And, of course, I was, I was laughed at, mocked, called names. Theological pygmy, bigot, you know, the, all the things. And uh, my last Presbytery meeting, um, it was over. I was like, hallelujah. I'm heading to Grace Presbytery in Dallas. That would be so much better. No, it wouldn't. And uh, a pastor, a liberal, came up to me. And he said, I want to say two things to you before you leave. He said, number one, you never lost your cool. We did everything we could to make you get angry and cuss us out. And you never did. And I really thank you for that. And I have a lot of respect for you. And he said, you've also caused me to rethink a lot of what I thought was correct. That was, that was the nicest thing ever said to me in the ministry. So I don't know whatever happened to him, but I hope he's figured it out. Speaking the truth in love and finding Christ's micro will for you as a how to navigate this. It's going to be different for Dirk than Milt. Um, I'm going to end with a story to help illustrate this. Um, some of you know who Robert Jeffries is. He's the senior pastor of First Baptist in Dallas. He came to town, I don't know, 2009 maybe. And when I came to Highland Park, only one pastor in town called me and welcomed me to the city. Only one. An Episcopal guy. Very nice guy. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to call Robert. Didn't know him. And welcome him to Dallas. And I called him. He got to him. And he thanked me. And he started sending me all of his books that he's written for free. I've got all of his books. Robert is really one of the nicest, most godly guys I have ever met. But he and I have a different micro calling as to how to uh, share the gospel with the culture. Robert's a culture warrior. You may have seen him on TV. He was a big Trump supporter and they'd have him on Hannity and peering with Trump and everything. Robert loves to poke the culture in the eye. He hadn't been there three weeks at First Baptist Dallas. And I drove by it one day and the signboard for his sermon he had a three-part series on it, it was something like why homosexuals are going to hell. Now, if I had been pastor of that church for 40 years, I would have never titled my sermon that. But he'd only been there about three weeks. You know, there's this old Young Life rule. I used to work with Young Life. You know, earn the right to share the gospel. Build relationships. And then, you know, before you tell them, that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. Uh, Robert enjoys controversy and... and uh, and most of the Baptists in Dallas that like that have flooded down to First Baptist. But his styles differ from mine. And I used to worry about that. I thought, maybe I should be more, you know, poking the government in the eye from the pulpit and blah, 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 blah. And I prayed about it. And I just didn't feel like it. And I talked to Jim Dennison about it all the time. He said, Ron, you're on the right track. I love Robert. But and one day I'm walking through Tom Thumb, the grocery store, checking out. And there was a magazine in Dallas called D, D Magazine, about Dallas. And they have it there in the, you know, while you're waiting, all those different magazines. And Robert's picture's on the cover, and it says, interview with Robert. I thought, oh, no, D Magazine is not like, uh, they're not going to be friendly. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is going to be a butcher job. There was enough people in front of me that I thought, well, maybe can read this, and I'm <laughs> scanning it. The guy begins, the interviewer begins the article by saying, I went with every intent to rip this homophobic, bigoted, narrow-minded, fundamentalist pastor to shreds. And within 10 minutes of the interview, I was his best friend. And through the interview, the real Robert came. He's the most gracious guy in the world. So, but I'm not called to do what he's doing. I did what I think Christ was calling me to do. And that's true of you. You're going to all navigate this differently. 
But you can't do it without the three ordinary means of grace anchored in those and with the goal of speaking the truth in love and being honed more toward the image of Christ. The more you and I look like Jesus doesn't mean they ain't going to crucify us, but it does mean we've succeeded. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for who you are, for visiting us in Christ Jesus. You've laid it out pretty simple uh, to be conformed to the image of your Son. And yet that's very hard. We kick against the goads as the Holy Spirit tries to hone us. Lord, give us a hunger and thirst after your word and prayer and the sacrament so that we will be equipped to faithfully make the journey ultimately to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.